of you heading to the catechism class are dismissed through that door. Our text this morning, beloved, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you were here about a month ago, we did preach on the first three verses and then took an excursus to do the one anothering passages towards the end of the chapter. So I'm going to focus this morning on 4 through 11, but I want to read 1 through 11 for us. This is the word of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. Imagine you're living on one of those Hawaiian islands where there's an active volcano. And the neighborhood where you live is at the base of one of these, and all of a sudden it erupts, and here comes the molten lava flowing down the hill. You're in danger, and the only way out of this trouble is for the, the government to send in helicopters and airlift everybody out, and you happen to be the last in line. They come, they go, they come. Finally, the, the, the next to last one comes, takes people off, and there you are, and you're waiting for that helicopter to come back. You're scanning the horizon. You're listening for that sound of the helicopter, and there's a delay, and a delay, and you begin to wonder, have they forgotten us? Are they coming back? There's no way out to safety. That's something of the fear and concern that our brothers and sisters in Thessalonica are experiencing at the time Paul is writing. When Paul preached the gospel, he always taught the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the second coming of Jesus. And these believers expected Jesus to return, to be gathered up to Jesus off the earth, and the earth would then be burned with fire and remade into paradise. But there's been a delay, and they are thinking, they're fearful, have we missed the helicopter? 
Could we miss the second coming? The problem doesn't go away. Paul writes again, I've got the text for you in your sermon outline in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He begins that chapter by saying this, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being, gathered together to him, he referred to that in 1 Thessalonians 4, those who are alive will be lifted off the earth, their bodies transformed in the twinkling out of eye, those who have died with Jesus, come with Jesus, will be gathered to Jesus in the air. That's what he's referring to. He says, brothers, we ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He's still addressing it. They are alarmed. They are fearful. Now, in, in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he goes on to show historical markers that, that must precede the second coming. But for our purposes, I want to ask this question because this is what Paul is dealing with in this text. How does Scripture, how does the Lord want us to think in anticipation about the second coming? You know, and I realize probably in your Christian experience, this isn't a problem for you, wondering if you miss the second coming. Probably not a problem for any of us. Nonetheless, this text is in here for our good. So I want to answer it in two ways. What does Paul want us to know about anticipating the second coming? First of all, your status guarantees your participation in the second coming. That's what he's saying. Paul's emphatic. It is impossible to miss the second coming of Jesus, both for what it is and for what you are. About a month ago, we saw that Paul describes the second coming in a way that makes it audible, visible, and absolutely unmistakable. Jesus will come with the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. And we learn in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire. Nobody's going to miss that. Nobody's going to miss that. But more importantly for the text, for Paul's purposes, you won't miss it because of what you are. Your status as a believer in Jesus Christ guarantees it's impossible to miss the second coming principally for this reason. He's coming for you. You are his prize. You are his cherished possession. You are his bride. He's coming for you. He's not going to miss you any more than the parents who put their kids in that nursery will walk by that nursery and go, I don't think I'm taking you home today. It's impossible. You're Christ's. He's coming for you. You couldn't stop it. <laughs> you can't miss it. He loves you. He's going to get you. That should fill us with encouragement, joy, maybe a smile. But notice how Paul grounds this in the language of identity. He says, you are, you're not. You are, verse 5, you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night of the darkness. Translated, you belong to Jesus. He comes for what is rightfully his. Nothing's going to keep him from getting what is his. You have a status that guarantees that when that helicopter comes, you're on it. And, and to be certain, we get this point, Paul contrasts for us those who are aware and anticipating the second coming and those who are not. Notice those who are not aware are said to be in the night 
in darkness, sleeping drunk. What are those pictures of? Cluelessness, inattentiveness, a false sense of security, not being in your right mind. Now, you might wonder if that's you. This would be you if your personal creed is, nobody can tell me what right and wrong is for me. I must decide for myself. This would be you if your personal motto is, only I can decide what will make me happy. This would be you if you are absolutely committed to a a lifestyle of autonomy. You always and only want it your way. This would be you if you don't believe there's any accountability at the end of history. This would be you if you've convinced yourself there is no God or you've convinced yourself that if there is a God, his job is to forgive you when you get to heaven. Those would be markers that you're really still unaware of the nature of reality. And Paul says, echoing the words of Jesus, the tragic result is at the end of your life, you'll be like a person sleeping and a burglar comes in and ravishes his life. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but can you imagine sleeping and you open your eyes and there's a burglar with a gun in your face? Horrifying! That will be what it was like, what it will be like when Jesus comes again for those who are unaware. In contrast, the aware are said to be what? In the light of the day, sober. This is consistent with all of Christian teaching, that conversion creates dramatic black and white transfers. You fill in the blank. We have been transferred from darkness to light, from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from falsehood to lies, from being asleep to being awake. We've been transformed from self to Jesus. So Paul seems to be saying, look, guys, you're concerned that you might miss the second coming. The fact that you have that concern, the fact that you desire Jesus to come for you is proof you belong to him. It's proof you're in the light. And hidden underneath this beautiful, beautiful teaching is a, is a marvelous doctrine called union with Christ. And that simply means this, the moment you trust Jesus as your savior, God spiritually unites you to Jesus so that what is true of Jesus is true of you. That's why Paul can say we are of the light, of the day. It's it's because Paul's trained in Hebrew. He's a Hebrew thinker. To be of the light or of the day is a Hebrew way of saying you're born of the light. You belong to the light, so you ought to bear striking resemblance to the light. And say, who's the light of the world? Jesus, if you're in union with the light of the world, you are correspondingly of the light. And it's no surprise that Jesus would be called the light of the world because the concept of light throughout the Bible is that it represents not only the presence of God, but God. God is light. (laughs) Jesus is light. You're in Jesus, you're light. He argues on the basis of your most fundamental identity. And actually, if you're prone to forget that, God's put this big ball of fire in the sky to remind you every day. It's called the sun. It represents God. In fact, the scripture says God is the sun and the shield. But the sun reminds you, oh, I can never escape the presence of God, but I can't look directly at him because he's too holy. You see, you can't live without the sun. You can't live with the sun. Jesus has come to make the sun safe. So that raises the question, how do you become of the light? 
It took God extinguishing the glory of the light of Jesus on the cross. He who was the light of the world on Good Friday hung on a horrible cross, and as it were, the one who burned brightly, the light of the glory of God that was extinguished as he took the darkness of your sin into his body, the light went out. Thank God on the third day he rose from the dead, ever shining the radiant glory of the light of God. He'll never stop shining. In fact, one day there is no sun. All there's going to be is Jesus shining. But you're of that light, beloved. But Paul never stops with the indicative. Sorry, that means telling us what is. He always conjoins it with the imperative, what you're supposed to do about it. And he says, let your life match your status. Verse 6, see it? So let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and sober. This is the message of the Bible through and through. God save you, act like it. He's made you sons, live like it. We are not trying to be good so God will accept us. God accepts us so we want to be good. Did I get an amen? Good. And the key word capturing the essence of acting like it is the word sober in the text, sober. Verse 8, since we belong to the day, let's be sober. This is so important. Paul teases out three aspects of it, and I want to show you what they are. The spiritually, slo- spiritually, slober, the spiritually sober, number one, are protected by faith, hope, and love. Look at verse 8. But since we belong to the day, that's your identity, that's the indicative, let us be sober, there's the imperative, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now these two pieces of armor are what by nature? They're defensive, they're protecting your head, they're protecting your torso. Protecting you from what? Spiritually sleepiness. Spiritual drowsiness, from that natural drift in your heart and my heart from being in love with Jesus to being in love with ourselves. I told my Sunday school class this morning, you should wake up tomorrow assuming your focus is on yourself. And if left to myself, I will drift out of the light into darkness. I don't have any other way to explain sin in my life. I've been freed from the tyranny of sin. I'm in union with Jesus. I'm of the day. I'm of the light. Sin is no longer my taskmaster. I've been set free from the tyranny of it. Not the presence of it, but the tyranny of it. The fact that I sin willfully is I've allowed myself to go to sleep spiritually. To not care about what is most important. So do you know that about your heart? Left to yourself, you will become unresponsive to the glory of God. That's why twice Paul says, verse 6, Let's not, let us not sleep, let us be alert and sober. And verse 8, since we're of the day, let us be sober. You, gotta, you have to be intentional about spiritual so- sobriety. How? Staying sober and alert. So let's ask this question. What do you think keeps your soul sober? How would you keep your soul sober? Well, you would keep out of your soul those things that would intoxicate it. And you would be filling your soul with those things that would propel you to Christ. So ask yourself, what influences have my heart dissatisfied with Jesus? 
Sin is always motivated by a dissatisfaction with who God is in himself, thinking you can find a greater satisfaction in something else. What are the things for your heart that would, that would propel you to be dissatisfied with Christ? Some of you, it's a relationship. I was counseling a woman in Texas years ago whose marriage was on the rocks, and she said, I will do anything to be married to that man. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't forsake Jesus to be married to that man. Some of you, it's success, it's work, it's money. There are things that crowd out the affections you once had for Christ. And the point is, those things make you intoxicated with less than that for which God has made you. Second question, what keeps you alert? What keeps you hungering for Christ's glory? The light. God has the sunrise in the morning for one reason. Light wakes us up. Stay in the light. Light keeps you alert. You're driving. It's dark. Your eyes tend to do this. Stop. Turn the lights on. We have this incredible privilege of God giving us light in his word. Take the word of God. Let its light shine over everything in your life. Shine over all of your heart. Let your mind be filled with the light of God's word. And then you'll know falsehood from truth. What's important and what isn't. And because this word ultimately points to Jesus, this word will minister the, 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 the power, the presence, the majesty, the glory of Jesus to you. So notice that Paul is not just focusing on morality. That's not his way. He's saying the key to spiritual sobriety is nothing less than embracing all that Jesus is for you. It's appropriating out of the riches of the well, the wellspring of grace that has been opened for you by Jesus. It's appropriating them, those riches, constantly. That's why he says in verse 8, having put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Just think about those for a second. What is faith? It's believing how much Jesus loves you and living confidently in that. What is hope? It's longing to behold him in the future and being careful that nothing clouds your anticipation of the future vision of seeing Jesus face to face. What is love? It's letting his affection for you flow out to others. Okay, so this part of the sermon, we're simply looking at the spiritually sober are, number one, protected by faith, hope, and love. Secondly, they're prompted by the gospel. Does God want you confident in the day of the Lord? Confident in the second coming? Does he want you confident, living confident in that? Absolutely. How do you strengthen confidence? Clear and grander pictures of Christ. That's how you strengthen confidence. You look at the source of your confidence, Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. And incidentally, Paul in the first chapter has already talked about this. Why does he keep bringing up Jesus? <laughs> he can't get away from Jesus. We're not supposed to. <laughs> Nine and ten. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. What's the source of your confidence? It's God acting in time and space for your welfare. See, when he uses the word destined, where is Paul saying you should set your sights? Go back into eternity before the world was founded. Go back. God said, I want you, Donna Shaner, to exist. I'm going to will that you be born. And not only that, I'm going to will that I give you to my son, Jesus. <laughs> he destined you to belong to Jesus in eternity past. I'm going to unpack that this summer as we look at Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians. We're going to talk about the doctrine of election in a lot of detail. But this is what he, right? He destined you. He determined you would belong to Jesus you're a goner. If he determines it, you're going to belong to Jesus. And then he sets your eyes way into the future. Judgment day. Now, beloved, this is the real big bang. The world didn't start with a big bang. It's going to end with one. There will be, at the end of time, an explosion of wrath. God will judge every sin. It will be so bad that the book of Revelation says people who are beginning to experience it will hide in caves and ask that boulders fall on them. That's how bad it will be. Earth history has a goal and a just and righteous judge to be true to himself will mete out just punishment for every sin. There will be an explosion of wrath. And Paul is saying, see yourself on Judgment Day standing there clean, righteous, unafraid. How did that happen? Our confidence is now 2,000 years ago on Good Friday. If you believe in Jesus, that wrath was poured into the sinless body of Jesus and was removed. That's our confidence. Christ alone. He's saying, look back in time, look forward in time, look at Jesus, and now you live before him so that, as, as Paul says, we live together with him. God did something that we could live together with him forever. He took his wrath and threw it into the body of his own son. <laughs> now, if you want to be alert and sober, you're thinking about that. You're letting that grip you. That's never far from your consciousness. It will make you full of praise and make you more humble and ravishingly more beautiful than you can imagine. Let me say this to some of you who aren't sure you belong to Jesus. I, and I hope you are deeply concerned at this moment for Judgment Day. You should be. Here's what God promises in Ezekiel 33:11. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Beloved, if you have not given yourself to Jesus, this is the day. This is the moment. God will receive you. Jesus is declaring to you, now I will save you. Turn to me. I will cleanse you. I will forgive you. You will be safe on judgment day because I will take the judgment in your place. That's the gospel. Nothing you can do to escape judgment, but take Jesus. Okay? He's giving himself to you right now. Please don't leave today if you haven't done that. And the last mark of the spiritually sober, they are propelled to one another. Okay, three Ps. Pastor's a little goofy. Propelled to one another. Verse 11, 
Paul concludes this section, therefore encourage one another and build up one another. It's just, I love what Paul does. If you go back into chapter 4, where he finishes talking about this in chapter 4, how does he conclude in verse 17? Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Now, what's the context? I have to remind you. In Thessalonica, the saints are suffering. Life is hard. They're being persecuted because they love Jesus. Loved ones are dying. And the love of their life, Jesus, is out of sight. They need comfort and encouragement. What is God's UPS? What is God's FedEx to get them comfort? According to the verse. It's the person sitting next to you. It's your spouse. It's your brothers and sisters, kiddos. It's the people in your home group. It's the people in your Bible study. It's the people you serve on the deacons with. It's the people you serve on music team with. It's, the, it's one another. That's the delivery system God has ordained that we receive this kind of comfort because when I'm up and you're down, you need my upness. When I'm down and you're up, I need that. I forget the gospel. I lose sight of Jesus. So comfort me, encourage me. So what Paul is saying is when you were converted, not only did you receive the righteousness of Jesus, a perfectly clean heart, but he gave you spiritual bricks. He gave you spiritual nails. He gave you spiritual putty. He gave you spiritual two-by-fours. He gave you spiritual steel. He gave you spiritual roofing. Hey, look, he's given you all these things. What are you supposed to do with this? Build up each other. Build up each other, encourage, that's the wonderful Greek word, parakaleo, to be called alongside. And to, be, to build up others is to see each other as a building that's like dilapidated. If you don't know your dilapidated building, then the, the termites of pride are eating away at your salvation. You're dilapidated. I'm dilapidated. I need your spiritual meals, roofing, two-by-fours, hammers, so what are some of the things God tangibly uses to comfort, to build up, to encourage one another? Your time, these two things stuck on the side of your head, you got two of these and one of these, use these twice as much as you use this. Listen, some of you have been given great biblical wisdom, great biblical knowledge, use that. Some of you have enough money to share with others, use that. Some of you have wonderful spiritual gifts, Ask, Lord, how can these be used to encourage and edify our brothers and sisters? And then one day, it's over. We're off. No more opportunity to love each other like this and reveal the glory of Jesus on this earth. Time is short. Let's pray. We are slow to see, dull to believe that to be called children of light, sons of the day, was so costly to you, Jesus. So costly. Your body ripped to shreds, suffocating under the weight of the cross, your father turning his anger on you. Jesus, thank you that therein is the power, the love of Jesus for us, to sacrifice and suffer so much 
that love getting us to live outside of ourselves. So may we at Wallace live continually in a culture of encouragement and building one another up. We know you'll give us opportunities. May we seize them for Jesus' sake. Amen.